0: Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. So I'm here today with my friend and co-conspirator in the world of historical fiction, Anne Easter Smith. Anne, how are you doing during this lockdown period?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I have uh, finally had enough of it. It's been too long and it doesn't help that we are also trying to sell a house and uh, all of the stresses that usually go into that are doubled in COVID because anybody coming through your house you don't want touching anything and they have to be masked with your agent and it's it's just it's a it's very much more stressful so this this is a welcome respite yes (laughs)
0: yes <laughs> i agree with the stressful thing and it's getting old but unfortunately it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon i think no. this is but you know, it's interesting what we've heard from different writers some writers are saying hey i have all this time and others are like i just can't focus
1: no where I do you fall
0: focus. on that yeah
1: yes well actually for the first three weeks I finally admitted to my husband that I I really couldn't focus on reading a book, let alone writing. It just It just so happened that my last book came out in November and I didn't have any plans to start another one. So I wasn't sort of on a deadline or having to write in COVID time because I, I kind of had put um, the brakes on my writing life, which was good, because if I couldn't even read a book properly, it, I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to write either. But then gradually, I, I knew that if I was going to read a whole book, I read articles and emails and lots of Facebook posts and things. But when I finally sat down to read a book, I knew it had to be plot driven, because I, I needed to have something to turn the page and not I didn't want to read Hilary Mantel's latest Wolf Hall book because I knew I'd get bogged down and I would put it down. So I I went to my tried and true kind of plot driven writer and that's Ken Follett.
0: Oh, yes. Love that. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I read, I read a Victorian saga of his and it that got me back into reading, and I'm happy to say. And I've, I've since read about six or seven books.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you say about plot-driven versus character-driven, which is the sort of distinction people make. I've been doing a lot of work with coaching, book coaching and stuff and and reading a lot of different things. And and I have come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as a plot-driven book, that even those action-packed ones you're talking about, you only like them, you only get involved in them because you just want to know what the characters are going to do
1: next, you know? Yes, exactly. So you're, you're right, they do have to have very good characters. I'm, I'm reading one at the moment and I'm not going to say what it is for fear of, of offending, but it is very much uh, driven by historical action and there are so many people and so many names and so many places and i am and i and i read a lot of historical fiction believe me and i have researched obviously for all of my books so i i've kind of learnt over the years what history to leave out or what history to put in and i think as historical fiction writers we need to know it all in order to know what to leave out so i'm but i i am really bogged down with this if i read one more battle scene i'm going to probably throw my kindle across the room so yeah. so but but that's that's a, an an example of um, almost too much action and i'm not i'm not getting character and mm-hmm. so i so i'm a little bored so
0: it, it's really interesting you you kind of hit the nail on the head i think with historical fiction in that the way you put it was perfect and I'm going to steal it, which was that we have to know it all so we can know what we have to leave out. That That's is right. just excellent. And your subject matter, the Wars of the Roses, there's a ton and ton and ton of stuff. So yeah. briefly, first of all, what attracted you to that particular period and how did you go about deciding what to leave out in different
1: books? So my books, there are six books about the York family in the Wars of the Roses. So the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century was a civil war between two branches of the Plantagenet family, the Yorks and the Lancasters, as to who had the better claim to the throne. And I fell on that particular um, family because ever since I was 21, I have had this rather obscene obsession with Richard III. And I read a book about him by Josephine Tay called The Daughter of Time. And in that book, she refutes everything that we learned at school, because obviously I'm British, and I went to a very upright British boarding school, and we learned that Richard III was one of our capital B bad kings. And so when I read Josephine Tay's book, who manages through, in a novel, for, a novel form, it's, a, mis, it's, a, it's a, a, a detective novel, to refute all of these things I thought about Richard III that Shakespeare has helped to reinforce in the British culture for 500 years. Um, and I was just totally gobsmacked. I couldn't believe that this is the same Richard that I had learnt about at school. So it started a 50-year obsession, now I'm giving away my age, it started a 50-year obsession with Richard, which culminated in my 50s to start thinking about perhaps I'd like to write a book about him. I did not expect to write more than one book. I wanted to get Richard off my chest, and I'd always read historical fiction and loved it, and by this time, I'd actually been hired by a newspaper in upstate New York to write their features, be their features editor and arts editor. Don't ask me how I got that job. I still don't quite understand it. But it taught me the, you know, the, the importance of a beginning, a middle and an end and how to kind of construct a chapter or a, a story so I started writing it and finished it. And amazingly, it got published by Simon & Schuster. But that was the only book I I was going to write. It was my Richard book. and But the editor had other ideas. And she said, no, I, if I'm buying this book, I want another one from, I want a two book deal. So then I was at a loss as to what to write. And my agent said, well, you had mentioned that how, how interesting you had found Richard's sister in this book. And I said, yes, you're right. Margaret of York had intrigued me. I didn't know anything about her when I started researching and writing. So we put a proposal in and I didn't know anything about her and, she, and the editor accepted it. And so then, then I was hooked on the period because obviously I'd done all my research. I had all the material I might as well stay in the same period it blows my mind how some of our friends historical fiction friends can jump from period to period in each book I mean I've put in 50 years of research into this these series of books and the idea of starting a new period would just freak me out I think (laughs) so
0: yeah that's kind of what I do isn't it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but I have other threads that tie them together I tend to be in the arts and music yes. and realm right. so 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 there is a kind of a, mostly a kind of a connection continuity with, yes
1: yeah, yes yes yeah.
0: so you mentioned in passing you had a career as a a journalist a brief career or i don't know how brief and 10 then US, you, yes. yeah so that's not so brief and and i you are just a multi-talented woman with lots of skills and lots of interesting experiences. So talk to me a little bit about, first of all, the singing, and second of all, your acting and directing, which is really, really fun. And And how, how if at all, do those dovetail or relate to the writing?
1: Well, I, I do think, you know, journalism aside, my writing aside, um, just having done a lot of acting and directing I, I kind when I'm writing I very very easily visualize scenes and dialogue I think that's because I've read so many plays and I I can hear where there's dialogue that's not natural and when it is natural I think it has helped me a lot to write dialogue scenes the narrative is another matter I'm I I think I'm I'm okay at it. But I, I do like getting into the dialogue. And I'm sure it has something to do with, with my love of theater and just sitting through so many plays and listening and listening to you know, well-written dialogue. I think that helps a lot. As for the singing, that was uh, uh, another little career I had when I divorced my first husband in, in Plattsburgh, New York. And I had not very much to do. He would not allow me to work. He was in the Air Force and he wouldn't, didn't want me to work while we were married. So I, I started to sing because Plattsburgh was, you know, small towns. They're desperate for some kind of talent. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I, I had learned guitar in England at the English Folk so- Song and Dance Society. So I knew how to play guitar and I loved all the English, old English folk songs, but I had added John Denver and Joan Byers and Judy Collins to my repertoire. And suddenly somebody asked me to sing at the at a restaurant and and then I started singing in bars and it 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 sort of sustained me through my divorce, my first couple of years um, of divorce until I was able to get a job at the local p b s station and then I went into the newspaper so that was in the the um, mid eight, mid eighties to mid nineties and beyond. But uh, so in, in my Rose for the crown, each one of my protagonists, my female protagonists have a certain skill. And so I researched that skill and Kate in Rose for the crown is a, she becomes very adept at harp, playing the harp. And she has, you know, a really beautiful voice. And that's what brings her to the attention of Richard III and eventually becomes his mistress. So I, I, I have me in, in my first book for the singing and the music, and of course it's old English music, so I know that, so I was able to use that. And then my second book, which was um, about Mar- Margaret of York, who was a bibliophile, she gave William Caxton the, the first commission to translate and print something in English. Of course, and she loves books, and her nickname is Mistress Knows in a Book, but her brothers call her. And, and of course, that's me too, because I, I, I like books and writing. and so.
0: It is interesting how we, how we infiltrate, as it were, history with our own little kind of bits and pieces. Did you always plan to write the last book? With Richard III, or what happened when they discovered his bones? Was that the? Was that? Did that change anything?
1: Yes. So, as I mentioned before, Rose for the Crown was supposed to be my Richard book, and I wanted to tell Richard's story as I had learned through research that he was not the monster murdering uncle. And but I was so unschooled at at writing you know, I, I, I've never had any writing courses in my life. I've no, all I did was fall into this job at the newspaper because of my singing and because of my acting, they needed an arts person. And they said, Oh, well, we we've seen a little bit of your writing in a, a little magazine in Plattsburgh. And we think you can do this. So I was sort of learning on the job, how to write an article and everything. So my, my, my Rose for the Crown was supposed to be the one and only book I wrote about Richard. But he was the secondary character. He was, my, my real character was Kate. So it's her story. As a friend of mine keeps pointing out, you still haven't written your Richard book. And I'd say, yes, I did. It was the Rose for the Crown. No, that was Kate's book. So anyway, I was after Royal Mistress, which is my fifth book. I decided I was done with the Yorks. That was mostly about Edward. And um, I thought, right, there's this fabulous story I'd heard about when we were on vacation in Portugal, and I was going to write this story about a Portuguese prince, and, and then they found Richard's bones. <laughs> and and it, it was just so thrilling for me when, when that happened. I was lucky enough to be interviewed by on NPR as a Richard III so-called expert when they found the bones. But so my friend, who has been my sort of first reader, editor, she said, now you need to write your Richard book. And I said, I don't know if I want to, you know, there have been good books about Richard and I'm writing the Portuguese Prince one. And anyway, I finally... I decided, yes, she was right. I had not really told Richard's story from Richard's point of view. So that's how This Son of York came to be. Yes,
0: I, I, lo- I of course, I love reading your books. What I thought was wonder, particularly wonderful about This Son of York was how you, you used the news articles to sort of introduce each section. So, I mean, it was really kind of spine-tingling to see all of that. Up yes. What actually what happened in the past.
1: So I am very grateful to Philippa Langley, who is a member of the Richard the Third Society and who was the magician really who discovered where where they the she thought Richard's Bones might be. She was walking through a park, a car park in Leicester, and we knew that was somewhere around where the Greyfriars Church had been back in medieval times, and where Richard's body had been taken after Bosworth, Battle of Bosworth. And he, Henry VII told him to them to bury him there. But nobody really knew where the, the monks had buried him because he did not get a kingly burial. Henry decided he he was a bad man. And so he didn't get a royal burial. Anyway, and the last we heard was that perhaps during the desecration of the monasteries by Henry VIII, that his bones had been thrown into the river, which was right running right alongside the church there. So anyway, she got this funny feeling walking through a parking lot. And and she went to the University of Leicester. She got the Richard III Society behind her. And this one other historian, John Ashdown Hill, who was pretty convinced that that, that was where the Greyfriars Church had been, so the, the university of Leicester archaeologists uh, department said okay we'll do a dig but we're not looking for bones we're archaeologists we're interested in finding the greyfriars church if we find richard the richard the bones and and the, the 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 head of the department said and I'll eat my hat if we do he, he said great you can have them the bones but we are interested in the buildings so so that's how it all came about. So Philippa wrote, wrote in, you know, very meticulous notes in a journal about the whole dig and that this book, The King's Grave is where I borrowed some of her passages and she gave me permission to use them in the book. So,
0: Yeah. That's such a thrilling story, really. There, how was, many and, times-
1: she, and she was exactly right. They were right where she had had her funny feeling. Oh my gosh, I just got a chill down my spine. I, I know, it was very odd. And yeah, and she said, you know, and I'm not a kind of woo-woo person, she said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are stranger things in heaven and earth, for sure. Well
1: uh, and 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 fact is always stranger than fiction. That's why I don't mess with history in books. My my character's stories are every bit as as uh fascinating as anything you can make up.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Something that I know uh, a lot of historical novelists struggle with, including me, is you decide you wanna write about something or someone, and you research it and you have a hard time because all these fabulous things or interesting things happen, but there maybe isn't an actual arc that makes sense for the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got an arc sort of ready-made with his death, I guess. But still, you have to do, you have
1: to, is that, so how do you deal with that in, in your work? I think one of the, one good thing to do is to have an idea of where you want to end the story. My editor once told me, and this was a very valuable piece of information, I mean, piece of advice. She said, Anne, you are not a historian. You are telling a story. And she said, you don't have to tell the whole story. You don't have to tell from his birth to his death. I, I do happen to have done that in, in *This Son of York, but I think it was very necessary. But But my other book's for example my second book i finish my daughter of york margaret's story before a whole lot else happens to her but the trouble is that what did happen to her after that was when she became rather less interesting as a character she became quite strict and rigid and had to deal with a lot of politics and a lot of my story about margaret was her love of these books and starting the publication of of, of books in english and her lo- and 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 a secret love she had so all my books have a some you know love affair in there and um so i chose to end her end my book on a happier note in her life because then when she goes back, she finds out that her lover is executed by Richard III, and <laughs> that then she loses her stepdaughter in a riding accident. Then her brother dies, and then uh, Richard dies, and all all these things kind of pile in on her. And I thought, no, I'm going to finish on, on an up note. So so I think if you can see where, where you want to take this story, and, and that makes... A natural end. I think it's uh, easier to then form the arc than if you go right until she, you know, croaks. So and and yeah. go down on the a downward slope. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, that's. A but good. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I'm terrible about structuring a story. I got better at it as I, as my books went on. So that I, but my my skeleton is is the history. Is their history? So this has to happen, that has to happen, this has to happen, and, and how do you lead up to that? And which, which one of these things is the crescendo? And that's sort of how I do it, is, is from the, 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 you know, the, the timeline, the actual historical timeline.
0: Um, right, but you know, what really gives a book its structure, once you have that timeline, once you've figured out where you're going, where you're gonna end, what has to happen, is filling in how the characters reacted, what led them, what the whys were in between. So, and and I think you do that really well. So I don't think you should be apologetic about your ability to structure a story. I've never, you know, I've always been very engaged in your work. Um, Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I was wondering if you would maybe comment. I, I posted this thing on Facebook about Mark Dawson buying 400 copies of his book from one bookstore just to nudge him up into the top 10 in the bestseller list. And people have had interesting reactions. So tell I've us what them. yours is.
1: Yeah. yeah well, my, my reaction is A, I have not done that. I I certainly have ordered. I would never go and buy them from a bookstore because I can get them at an author discount from Simon & Schuster. And I need to buy a box. I do need to buy a few boxes of books to take with me when I go to book talks at libraries because they don't sell books and they allow us authors to sell books. So I do have some books in my basement but I certainly it never occurred to me to to falsely buy books you know for for that reason I mean I've never made the bestseller list at uh, uh, really except in Germany. I have been a best selling author in Germany strangely. <laughs> but i'm uh, I don't know i think I think the guy must be be a little bit unselfconfident i don't know to have to do that
0: yeah, he's an interesting character because he really makes his career. Teaching and, and helping authors market their books, so uh, that's what made me feel. Made me really, because one of his hooks is his own success.
1: So I'm well, saying, this oh, is
0: what I did to get for success. But he didn't buy, yeah, yeah,
1: buy four hundred books, right? From the right bookstore. From oh, the uh, right bookstore. From the right bookstore. Well, I, I think. I think. Unfortunately, the publishers have made us be um, devious. I really do. I, I think, you know, maybe your listeners don't know how publishing has changed in the last, well, since I started, since I published Rose for the Crown, which was 2006, I had a book tour around the country and I was an unknown author. I had, they took I was on a Philip with Philippa Gregory because we were the same as you were with the Touchstone, and we were in the New Yorker and 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 also in the New York Times Review of Books ad, I, and they they put me in there. By the time I got to Royal Mistress in 2011, 2013, actually, no book tour, they barely paid my gas to go to places like Northampton and Boston and they expected me to do most of the Facebook mar- marketing and Twitter and they took no ads out and they wondered why my books didn't sell. Yeah. My fifth book, you know? It's, yeah. uh, and, and, the, uh, and most of us are writers. We are not marketing People, I mean, otherwise, I should have gone to school for marketing and forget the writing <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 can't spend your day pushing your books on on Facebook and Twitter. At least I can't. And being English, that is the hardest thing for me to do is even put my face out there and say buy my book. It's 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 so against my grain. I just won't do it. So, you know, this son of York, which I published with Bella Storia and i love the publishing uh, the, the, the the women who publish with bella storia and the book looks wonderful and I, and i love it i just i, I just couldn't bear to do any more once i did the first push you know yeah. but publishing yeah. the public the publishers aren't helping us much either big publishers um,
0: yeah that's the thing
1: uh, uh, that that upsets me is that when Philippa Gregory puts out a new book. They take out these huge ads in the New York Times and uh, she doesn't need any ads. Mm-hmm. It, it just needs, one person needs to say, Philippa Gregory has a new book and the whole world will buy it. She doesn't need, they don't, they need to spend the money on the people who are coming up and and get a new Philippa Gregory, you know, so yeah. I, I, yeah, I think it's difficult.
0: Yeah, because they've changed the whole business model. And that's part of the problem is it's a hit-driven business model instead of that old nurture the writers yes. along. But, you know, it is what it is, and we all have to sort of work within it
1: now. So, well, or not. You know, or not, or, yes. Exactly. That's why I, I could not sell my Richard book to a publisher. They said they don't, they don't want male protagonists, Nobody reads that, and, and certainly not medieval stuff anymore. It's out. So I, I just needed this book to be read and to be out. Well, you know, it was a little bit of an ego thing to see it on the shelf with my other books, because I do believe this is a book I should have written all along, but I, I'm, I just couldn't sell it. And, and I, couldn't, I wasn't going to be able to sell the Portuguese Prince for the same reason, male protagonist and medieval so it's it's so interesting
0: and you know in the end i had this i had a great conversation with stephanie cowell whom i know you know as well and in the end there's only one thing we as writers can control really and that's the writing so yes we just have to keep going and and hope things happen for the best and but also Help each other out as much as possible that's my my effort with this historical fiction podcast is to try and give a few voices that aren't in the anointed few an opportunity <laughs> to be
1: heard so yeah well i i really commend you for doing that and thank you very much this has been great i i just will once say one thing that uh, when i was trying to sell this son of york i i an agent that i because i I had lost my agent just before I finished the book, so I was talking to other agents and they all knew my writing. They said, oh, Anne, if you were writing anything else but, but a male protagonist in medieval, and even though it's Richard III and he's a rock star right now, they said, if you write me a World War II book, I could possibly piggyback The Son of York on that as a two book deal but I will never be able to sell this to a New York publisher. Uh, so World yeah. War II, and I said, uh, uh, to your point, Suzanne, that we have to go on writing, but we have to write what we feel passionate about. And I don't feel passionate about World War 2 <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, I don't want and, to write about it.
0: And there there are several really excellent books about that take place during that time. and And I read them as I read everything else. But I, yeah, I, it's not what I'm interested in
1: at all. So not my, what I'm not what I'm interested in in, in writing. Writing, yes, yes exactly, yes. exactly. So. so
0: yeah. So now that you've uh, got your six books and culminated with the Richard book, do you have plans? Are you going to write that Portuguese Prince book, or are you going to write something else?
1: Well, I, I wasn't going to write anything else really, and my husband said, you know, at your age, you can afford we can afford to have you retire. You've, you've, you know, I've worked since I was 17. So I am, but I, I finally just sort of got bored with this isolation. And I thought maybe this is, this is what I should do is revisit that book because I had done quite a lot of work on it. So I, I am actually revisiting the Portuguese Prince. Yes. Well, I,
0: for one, would love to read about a Portuguese prince.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's a very bizarre, macabre story. It really is. Mm.
0: Interesting. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking uh, with me this morning.
1: It's always fun. My pleasure. My pleasure from one end of Massachusetts to the other. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And maybe we'll talk again sometime.
1: I hope so, Suzanne. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Thank you. And you. All right.